everyone. Welcome to Mormon Book Reviews, where an evangelical encounters the restoration. I'm very excited about today's episode because, um, you know, I've been talking to my guest for a while. I met him at the Mormon History Association uh, this past June and proposed to him about him coming onto my program. And it was a real honor, first of all, that you uh, expressed interest in coming on my program. But it's even been a bigger honor uh, that you're also a regular viewer of my program. And, uh, and you felt that um, this was a good place to have uh, the particular conversations that we're going to have. Um, we have been planning on talking for a while. And then, um, long story short, Rod Meldrum and his Heartlander thing has kind of been got, caught the eye of John DeLynn and Simon Southerton. And they kind of did a thing. So I actually invited Rod to come on and he's going to come on and kind of present his case. And then I thought, well, I need to have somebody on who can also talk about that. But that's what we're talking about today. That's for a future episode. In any ways, I just want to introduce my guest, Thomas Murphy, anthropologist. Welcome to my program. Well, thank you. I'm coming here to you from uh, the lands of the Coast Salish nations in Western Washington. Uh, I'm at Edmonds College, which is a, it was a community college, has become a four-year college in recent years. And I've been teaching anthropology there for well over 20 years. Wow, so uh, I wanna mention to everybody that you are the president-elect of the Mormon Social Science Association. Uh, congratulations. And, uh, uh, and tell my audience a little bit, what is an anthropologist? What exactly does an anthropologist do? Yeah, I'll tell you first a little bit about the Social Science Association, the Mormon Social Science Association. Yeah, please do. And your viewers can uh, learn about the Mormon Social Science Association by going to mormonsocialscience.org. It's an organization of professional uh, sociologists, anthropologists, political scientists, and others uh, who study Mormonism. Uh, and uh, it's kind of shocking that they, they wanted to nominate me for, for president. And I'm now the president-elect as of uh, about a week or so ago. And that, that's a six-year commitment. I'll be president-elect for two years, become president. Uh, after that, when the, media, the, the main meeting of the Mormon Social Science Association will be in Salt Lake, uh, I'll take on the presidency at that time in, uh, in a couple of years and then serve later two years on the board after that. But it's a great organization for uh, kind of looking at Mormonism from an academic perspective uh, and uh, maybe of interest to many of your viewers. Uh, we do have a membership, so you can join for a small fee. Uh, we'd love to, to have your, your, your viewers uh, join us. And now an anthropologist basically studies humans and uh, is, is one form of social science. And we, we pride ourselves in being broad and holistic is the term we often use. So uh, an anthropologist looks at human experience through a, a multiplicity of perspectives. Uh, from a biological perspective, for example, uh, and you know, I've done, I, I'm rather unusual in, in, in anthropology because most people specialize in one of the sub-disciplines where I have uh, worked across the disciplines and particularly being at a community college, that makes a lot of sense because I have to teach across the disciplines. So in terms of, uh, biological anthropology. I've done work on DNA in the Book of Mormon, for example. I've done ecological work in Coast Salish nations uh, and a lot of fish and wildlife monitoring uh, in, in Western Washington. And uh, anthropology also includes archaeology. 
And uh, archaeology is basically the study of past societies through their artifacts. And I've led archaeological uh, projects uh, in Western Washington. I uh, participated in archaeological projects in uh, Middle Woodland or Hopeland, Hope, Hopewell uh, cultures in the Midwest uh, along the Mississippi River. Uh, and I interviewed uh, for a, a by, uh, for a video about Bible and the Book of Mormon about archaeology as well. And then linguistic anthropology, study of humans through language. Uh, and uh, I've participated in uh, linguistic anthropology projects in the, in, in the Mesoamerica among the Zapotec people, for example. I was a, a research assistant on a Zapotec ethnobiology project where we were looking at how Zapotec people understand the natural world and how that's organized in their language. Uh, and uh, my primary specialty, though, within anthropology is cultural anthropology. And that's, that's the study of humans through our symbolic uh, and social systems. Uh, and, you know, I've done a lot of work along that line uh, with uh, Mayan uh, and Nahua Mormons in Mexico and Guatemala. Uh, worked with uh, Haudenosaunee or Iroquois uh, cultures uh, historically, as well as uh, contemporary uh, and done things completely unrelated to Mormonism, like work on uh, green infrastructure in the Puget Sound region. So that gives you a little bit of overview of uh, anthropology. Yeah, you know, I just, I'm, I just, I was curious, uh, Sidi, uh, we used to have a cottage in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, and our cottage bordered Hiawatha National Forest. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, there are Iroquois and um, Oh, I'm trying to remember the other Indian group or Native American group uh, that's, that's there. But have you ever done, gone up that way and done some work in that area? Uh, not in, uh, in Upper Michigan in terms of being on the ground. However, I've read a lot of the primary uh, historical sources, especially the 18th and 19th century sources from that region. Uh, and, you know, so the, let you, it's an incredibly fascinating uh, component, especially in the War of 1812 would, would play a really important role in the, the cultural environment from which Joseph Smith and his contemporaries would come, especially, you know, the, the, uh, some of the prophetic movements that I think had an impact on, on Joseph Smith, uh, the Tenskatawa, uh, the Shawnee prophet, um, uh, Neil, and more uh, to the south, uh, a Delaware prophet or to east and south. And you know these these movements, and then Handsome Lake, right in Western New York. I think these movements actually uh, had an impact on Joseph Smith's thinking. Now that's going to be part two. Uh, yeah, <laughs> we're teasing that. We're going to have a really uh, interesting conversation about that in part two. So um, you you alluded to the uh, video. Uh, it was so you had DNA versus the Book of Mormon, and you had the Bible versus the Book of Mormon. And just so you folks know, I mean, some of you who are LDS might be aware of these videos, but millions of evangelicals uh, watched these programs. And they uh, were primarily would have been distributed via DVD because this is pre-YouTube. And I imagine there was a Christian television station or two that may have even aired, aired the program as well. So many evangelicals got their education about Mormonism and DNA watching Thomas Murphy, who was the LDS anthropologist was your title in the uh, documentary uh, series, and it was put out by evangelicals. Now, we're going to get back to that story, but we're going to go back in time. Mm -hmm. We're going to talk about Thomas Murphy's background. The purpose of this program is we're going to talk about Thomas's, um, where, you know how I say where an evangelical encounters restoration? Well, this is where a restorationist 
encounter, encounters evangelicalism. So Thomas, yeah. tell us, let's start from the beginning. Uh, yeah, thank you. Uh, and I look forward to getting to that discussion of those films. I will say that one time I was driving across Eastern Washington and uh, all of a sudden I heard myself on the radio. I was scanning through the radio and <laughs> I was like, whoa, what's this? And it was the evangelical station playing that DNA versus the Book of Mormon uh, video. So yeah, it's definitely been played a lot and students all the time come into my class that saw it at church and, uh, and so fascinating. But my inner encounters with uh, evangelical community started very early on when I didn't even know what an evangelical was. Uh, I was a young kid. I grew up in southern Idaho, and I'd lived on a farm for uh, a lot of my early years. And then my parents had uh, divorced, and I had moved to Burley, Idaho. And uh, in Burley, a small agricultural town, really potatoes or what what. Burley is all about. It's where you, a lot of your potatoes come from. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, that's where I got baptized. My family actually wasn't particularly active before the divorce. So it was kind of unusual that way. But after the divorce, both my, my mom and my dad got more active in the church. And, uh, and my stepfather uh, would be, you know, a new convert and, and very uh, kind of enthusiastic about his faith. Uh, and so in, in Burley, uh, I uh, joined the swim team uh, and I was, you know, just this young kid and I had a good friend, his name was uh, Philip uh, Allred and we would hang out together a lot. We we're on the swim team together and we'd run around town. I'd tell my parents I was going over to his house and, you know, I'd be at his house part of the time, but then we'd be running around town. And uh, one day we were down near the park. And there's a, a school there. I think I think it was a high school, if I remember right. And uh, it had an auditorium. And we were walking around. We saw all these people going into this auditorium. And we were just kind of curious kids. And so we poke our heads in there. And there's somebody talking. And people in the, in the audience. And they're talking about Jesus. And, you know, I, as a young Mormon kid, I knew Jesus had something to do with the church. And, uh, but this wasn't Mormon. I could, I could kind of tell that, that it wasn't the same because, well, for one, we didn't have church in a high school, right? Or a public school anyway. And, uh, and they talked a little different uh, about Jesus than we did. And, uh, but it was still Jesus. So it was familiar, but different. And we just sat down in the, the, uh, the chairs and uh, listened. And I think we, we came in when it was well into it. So I don't think we heard the whole thing. But uh, towards the end uh, of the event, uh, they issued this, what I would later learn is some, some form of an altar call, uh, is if you will accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, uh, we want you to come to the front and, uh, and come, you know, this is, this is the time to do it, right? Now is the time to, to take the Lord as your Savior. And uh, my, my friend is like, let's go, let's go up there. I'm like, oh, I don't know about this. <laughs> I said, you know, I don't know whether we should do that. And he's like, yeah, we should. It's really cool. And so we went up uh, and uh, they sat us down on, a, on the stage and uh, we talked with uh, this person and uh, she asked us if we would accept the Jesus as our Lord and Savior. And, uh, and we said, yeah, sure. 
<laughs> we will. <laughs> uh, so my first encounter with evangelicals, I didn't even know there was such a thing. Uh, and I didn't, I wasn't quite sure I was, what I was doing was right, but it seemed right. And, uh, and, it, and it wasn't Mormon, but it was, I didn't, you know, I didn't really understand at the time the differences. So it was kind of a fascinating uh, encounter. So in, there are many schools of thought within evangelicalism that would say you may very well be a, what they would call born again Christian. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of funny, huh? I know. Uh, and, you know, I, but I did, I did get, you know, throughout my life, I got a lot of warm feelings towards evangelicals because of people in my life. So uh, my aunts in particular on my, my dad's side, so my dad was a convert uh, to the church and as well as my stepfather was too. But I didn't deal with his siblings as much as my uh, aunts, my dad's sisters. And they were various brands of uh, Protestantism uh, and some more mainline, some more evangelical. And they were an important part of my growing up. I remember knowing they weren't Mormon because they drank and smoked. And <laughs> I knew that that wasn't a thing we were supposed to do. Uh, but they loved me, right? And they, you know, they were... Uh, really, uh, you know, good people. Uh -huh. And so I had, I was comfortable, I guess, around evangelicals from a very early age. Okay. Well, now let me ask you, um, did you then, when you, when you went and did the altar call, mm -hmm. did you tell anybody, did you tell your parents, uh, how did people react when you told them what you did? I did not. Oh, no, no, no. I wouldn't have told because we were, we were, I was supposed to be at my friend's house and oh, yeah. Uh, we were running around town. <laughs> so, no, I didn't tell anybody. In fact, this is the only time I think I've told it publicly. I mean, I've told my wife of this story a few times and my daughter, you know, but uh, yeah, this is the first time I've told that story publicly that I can remember. Wow. Wow. So, um, you know, I think that's very interesting. You see, you had your first encounter with evangelicals. Uh, of course, they they did the they went and done the evangelical thing, done got you saved. So, <laughs> and uh, and then and then you've uh, we're going to talk about this journey that you were on. So you said that throughout your life you had family that were uh, varying degrees of evangelical and Christian, and also uh, friends throughout your life that you encountered. Um, so maybe just talk a little bit about your faith journey, and then your encounters. So maybe we can bring in some of your Mormonism and your faith, and then also uh, the, your interactions with evangelicalism. Yeah, and I really want to focus on that evangelical thing, because yes. I think it will be interesting to your audience. And I've told my kind of faith story on other podcasts, like uh, A Thoughtful Faith and uh, Mormon Stories mm -hmm. and uh, Gospel Tangents. So people can listen to that side of the story there. Okay. Uh, but the evangelical side, I think, is really an important part of my faith development. Uh, so that that I haven't told well in in other locations. But you know that kind of a key besides growing up with uh, evangelicals, I also had a high school uh, girlfriend uh, who she was nominally Mormon, okay, but and, and so was her mother. But her mother was really an evangelical, and in, in her in her belief system. And uh, so this, this girlfriend introduced me to uh, the Godmakers. This is in the 80s. Uh, okay. And uh, it, I, the introduction was through the book, not the, not the movie. 
And so let me let me just hold up. I, I you gave me a list of books you encountered, and I yeah. got them together. So this is a, a, new, a newer version. This is uh, of the Godmakers by uh, Ed Decker and, and David Hunt, and I did a review of this book. The only book that got a zero out of five, by the way, folks. So. <laughs> yeah, you know it. it, it it's it's uh, harsh. Yeah, and. You know, that, that was the impression that I got way back then. I was, you know, a junior in high school. And, you know, but this girl that I was very attracted to uh, wanted to share it with me. So I would listen to anything she said, right? And yeah. uh, and so we, 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 were, we were thumbing through it. And I do remember a particular passage because it would come back to, to, to haunt me later. Uh, and this was this passage where uh, he talks about the temple and Mormons following the orders of Satan in the temple. And I remember the time I was like, no, 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 no. <laughs> Mormons don't follow Satan uh, and uh, certainly don't take orders from Satan. Uh, and uh, I would find out uh, many years later when I went through the temple that, yeah, I mean, he was exaggerating, but he wasn't making it all up. I mean, there, there were portions of the ceremony where uh, you did follow the instructions of Satan. <laughs> and uh, so that was kind of, interesting uh and that would that kind of stuck with me from that but for the most part my response at the time was skeptical uh i was already a i was a debater in fact uh that's how i met uh, uh this girlfriend as we were both on the high school debate team she was on a different high school uh and uh then i i as a debater you'd look at both sides of an issue and so i i was getting used to being critical of the different sources I had. And so I, I was pretty skeptical of, of Ed Decker at the time, but I didn't dismiss him all out of hand either. Uh, and, you know, then I, at that time I lived in Pocatello, Idaho. Uh, and uh, my, before my senior year of high school, I moved to St. Anthony, Idaho, which is right near Rexburg. Uh, and at that time there was a Mormon college there called Ricks College. Uh, and I met a young woman there, uh, Carrie uh, Sumner, uh, who uh, I would date and uh, marry. And uh, again, that's a story I've told uh, more on other podcasts, but the kind of long and short of it is I got married as a, a way to avoid a mission. Uh, also, feeling guilty about having premarital sex, I think, was a big part of uh, you know, jumping into a marriage really quickly worked out for me in that Carrie's an amazing person and has really, uh, you know, been my life partner now for 36 plus years. Uh, and she led me from Idaho uh, to Iowa. She grew up in Iowa. And uh, so I followed her out to Iowa. And after, after a short stint at Utah State University, I, we, we went to Iowa. And in Iowa, uh, I did some time in the military and uh, as part of the U.S. Army uh, National Guard and Reserve. And then we had uh, gotten involved in the restaurant industry. My dad had been in the restaurant industry, and I uh, kind of followed in his footsteps in that way and was helping uh, this was a popcorn store is what it was, a candy store. We had evolved with a little bit of a kitchen and restaurant. And uh, it was, at that time it was called Kimberly Popcorn. We changed its name to Little Red Caboose. Uh, but uh, I had a customer that would come in all the time who was evangelical. 
And it was pretty slow business. So uh, we had a lot of time to sit and talk. And uh, so, you know, he asked me about Mormonism. I, I, I don't remember how it came up, but uh, he would, he'd asked me and we'd have this dialogue back and forth. And the, he would say things like, you know, that there's no archaeological evidence to support the Book of Mormon, or that Joseph Smith was uh, sleeping around with all these uh, young women. And I'm like, yeah, right. This that can't be true. And and I said, well, you know, being having been a debater, I'm like, well, what are your sources? You know, what what are your sources? Where do you get these ideas? And uh, so he brought me a couple of books. Uh, Thelma Gears, Mormonism, Mama and Me, uh, and Walter hey, folks Martin's, here. Just yeah. we Walter Martin's uh, Kingdom of the Cults. Uh, and so uh, because I wanted to show him how wrong he was, I read those. And uh, that kind of started a whole quest because I wanted to, you know, show him that Mormonism was not what the way that it was framed. But I as I got into it, it turned out to be a lot more complicated than I had imagined. Uh, around the same time, my uh, father-in-law was the church education system uh, director for that area. He ran the institute at Palmer College, and then uh, he would be also over uh, public relations. And so this is in the aftermath of the Mark Hoffman bombings that many people probably have heard about through Mur Murder Among the Mormons lately on Netflix, right? And so in this aftermath of the Hoffman bombings, a number of books had come out. And one of them was Linda Silitoe and Alan Roberts' uh, Salamander, Salamander, The Story of Mormon Forgery Murders. And I, my father-in-law had that sitting on the coffee table one day. And I said, and I saw it and being curious, I, I asked if I could borrow it. And he's like, yeah, but, you know, be careful with that, that stuff. Uh, those are liberal Mormons, you know. Uh, and uh, he also had Sunstone magazine, for example. And he's like, and I, I picked that up and looked through, through it. And there were these cartoons making fun of, I think, gardening and things like that. And uh, he's like, yeah, these are really irreverent people, you know, so be careful with this stuff. But he did let me uh, look at it, and uh, and it started opening up this world. And that salamander, one of the things it did is introduce me to uh, Gerald and Sandra Tanner, who play a big part in in, in that story, and uh, uh, Mark Hoffman's encounters with with Gerald and Sandra. And so I got curious about Utah Lighthouse Ministry, and I. Uh, contacted them, signed up for uh, their newsletter and became a regular reader of uh, uh, Gerald and Sandra Tanner's newsletter. And it, around this time, I also uh, had decided to go back to, to college at, and I enrolled at the University of Iowa. And I took a history class my first uh, quarter uh, back in school and it was on conquest and colonization, uh, European conquest and colonization of the Americas. So it fit within uh, kind of looking at colonialism and early Mormonism had a lot 
in relationship to that. So I had to do a term project for the class. And in the Salomon, I'd read about Von Brody and uh, her uh, biography of Joseph Smith. Uh, no man knows my history. And so I asked the, the, the professor if I could uh, read No Man Knows My History and do my, uh, my term project around that book. Uh, and, and she said, sure. And she was actually quite interested in the topic. She wasn't a Mormon, but uh, just curious and uh, familiar with the book. And so I, I read Von Brody. Uh, and you know, by that time, my, my faith was really starting to uh, be on shaky ground. I was not believing that literally like I had been before. Our church attendance began to lapse. Uh, and you know, it really started to get a more complex view of uh, of, uh, re of religion and Mormonism in particular. But one of the things that happened was really kind of interesting. I, I, I eventually settled on an anthropology major. I tried a lot of different majors. as a biology, pre-med, uh, political science major. I was all these different things before I settled on uh, anthropology. But one time I was meeting with an advisor and he said, well, you need a humanities credit. Why don't you take this religion course? And at that point, I'd begun to really sour on religion because I had felt betrayed by Mormonism. And so I'm like, mm, I don't, I don't know about that. Uh, but he's like, well, it's a really good class. You know, people say really good things about it and you really need a humanities. And I'm like, ah, okay, <laughs> go ahead and sign me up. So I signed up for this religion course and this religion course blew my mind. It blew my mind. Uh, we started out reading Paul Tillich, uh, and uh, Paul Tillich uh, argued that doubt is an important part of faith. And I'm like, no, 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 no. We don't doubt. Mormons don't doubt. We know the gospel is true. We know Joseph Smith is a prophet. Uh, we don't doubt it. And uh, I remember writing a paper arguing against that. Uh, using my mother as an example. Uh, and, you know, I started taking more religion classes uh, here and there. I, I took a biblical archaeology class. I took uh, classes on uh, Eastern religions. And uh, then I took this one on uh, kind of variant varieties of early American religion that included uh, Mormonism. And I remember that professor, uh, T. Dwight Bozeman, in that class, he, he assigned uh, Parley P. Pratt's A Voice of Warning. And uh, I had been reading in Tanner's newsletter that the Pratt's A Voice of Warning had been altered and changed over time. So I looked at the version that we were reading in class and got a version from uh, Utah Lighthouse Ministry that was the original and, and found all these differences, right? So I took that to my professor and I'm like, uh, you know, this book that you're assigning has been altered and it's not the same as the original. And he's like, well, where did you hear that? And I said, well, uh, Utah Lighthouse Ministry. And he's like, mm, you don't want to trust those evangelicals. He said, you know, you got to be careful with that stuff. They are, they are, uh, basically not to be trusted was his response. And this is a, you know, a very famous 
uh, historian of Puritan religions. And so actually I believed <laughs> Gerald and Sandra, not him, because I had the evidence right in front of me. I could see the, the older copy and the newer copy. So uh, I, th that was kind of one of my first encounters with uh, academic prejudice, right? So there's, there is an academic prejudice against religion in general, mm -hmm. evangelicals and Mormons in particular. But uh, nonetheless, I uh, continued and pretty soon I realized I had enough credits to earn a degree in religion as well as anthropology. And so I uh, ended up getting a degree in both from the University of Iowa. Wow, what an interesting story. And then, you know, it is interesting how there is kind of an inherent bias in the academic community against evangelicals often. And, um, and so for them to even have that bias, it, so sometimes a secular bias can be mm -hmm. just as much of a blind spot as a religious bias. Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, it, it, can, it can go both ways. And, uh, you know, the, these experiences helped me to, you know, be open-minded, I guess, in, in all perspectives. And I try to treat everybody with a certain amount of respect until they, they show me otherwise. Yeah. Uh, you know, during this time at the University of Iowa, I should mention that uh, we did go back to church for a little while. I'd been deployed in the army uh, by, during the Persian Gulf War. And when we came back, when I got back, we were in financial dire straits. A lot of people don't realize how much uh, war can devastate a family's finances. And uh, I mean, just we had telephone bills in the thousands of dollars uh, because basically <laughs> AT&T was exploiting soldiers, right? Uh, just to be able to call home. And in order to pay those off, uh, we'd sought help from our, our in-laws and they weren't able to help, but they recommended we, we go talk to the church. And so the, when I went to talk to the bishop, I was straight up about my doubts. I told him, you know, my concerns about the church, but also said, you know, we need help. And, uh, and they said, well, you know, we'll help you out. We'll give you a loan. You'll have to pay it back. But, you know, the way you can pay it back is you don't have to give us the money back, but we'd like you to do some service. And they said, we want you to set up the, church, the chairs at church uh, for Sunday school. And so it was a pretty clever way to get us back into church. So we had to go to church every week to, to fulfill our service. And so we did that for, for six months and until uh, our service was fulfilled. And during that time, it was a great re-encounter with, with Mormonism. And you know, it was in a university ward. So it was a much more liberal version of Mormonism than I'd been raised with. And one of the, one of the members of the bishopric kind of reached out to me, probably got a prodding from the bishop and invited uh, Carrie and me over to his house. And, uh, and we had conversations about the church. And I told him, I said, you know, in my anthropology classes, I'm learning a very different story of uh, American Indian origins and of ancient America than appears in the Book of Mormon. And this member of the bishopric says, yeah, you know, for me, he says, I realized the Book of Mormon is a 19th century document. And I'm like, you're in the bishopric and you don't believe the Book of Mormon is a historical document? Uh, and I was like, wow. Uh, and, you know, and then I noticed uh, on his bookshelves, Dialogue and Sunstone. And, 
and I'd read about them in uh, uh, Salamander Letter and the news, the Tanner's newsletters. And so I asked him, you know, and I'd seen Sunstone before at my father-in-law's. And I asked him about dialogue and uh, Sunstone. And he said, yeah, these are great venues for uh, critically thinking Mormons. And, you know, he really thinks that there's not enough critical thinking in the church and that there really is a place for me as a critical thinker. And that he, you know, this taking a look at uh, those uh, magazine and journal might be uh, quite helpful for me. And and mentioned there's a Sunstone Symposium coming up in Chicago. And uh, I signed up for that. I attended this Sunstone Symposium. And it was kind of my first exposure to the spectrum of belief within Mormonism. And I, I remember thinking, man, this is a different paradigm for how people approach Mormonism than I'd been raised with. And I wrote a paper about uh, differing paradigms between Sunstone and uh, mainstream Mormonism back in the early 90s. And this was before uh, the September 6th when uh, a number of scholars would be excommunicated. And at that time when that happened, you know, the following year was kind of traumatic for me because these were the people that were trying to bring me back into the church. And all of a sudden they're getting kicked out. And I'm like, hmm, that, that's really intriguing. Uh, and, you know, nonetheless, I, I thought, you know, I really, I really enjoy this study. Like you, I like to read these books. I love to read. And I kept getting more and more books. And I'm like, well, how can I work that into my education? And I, I was in this uh, anthropology class called Alcohol and Culture. And we're reading about uh, this, these efforts to use uh, peyote uh, and other traditional Native American ceremonies as a treatment for alcoholism. And one of these was a, a group that uh, believed in the word of wisdom, a group called the Peyote Way Church of God. And I read about this in my one of my assigned readings in the class, and I'm like, who are these people, the Peyote Way Church of God? So I uh, looked them up, which in those days was a little more challenging than it is today with the internet. Uh, but I did manage to, you know, I went to the library and I followed these sources and I, you know, looked up, uh, I think I got in old phone books and things, you know, but eventually I found their contact information and I contacted them there in Arizona and I told them I was, a college student taking a class working on a term paper and I'd be interested in uh, learning a little bit about their history and uh, how they got connected with with peyote and Mormonism how do they make sense out of the, uh, using a hallucinogenic cactus as part of the word of wisdom and it, this turned into a fascinating study of the divergent paths of the restoration I should say that you know I had I had met uh, uh, Stephen Shields and uh, seen his book. And I, I just thought there's this niche for me. If I'm kind of not sure I fit in that LDS camp, but I'm interested in Mormonism. What about learning about these different varieties of the tradition of the, of the restoration? So it's very much the path that you went along or are doing here. And I'm like, you know, there's all these fascinating groups. And I was kind of leaning towards those that combine uh, American Indian, uh, Native American, and Mormon ideas, 
because uh, I'd grown up with these stories of, uh, of an Indian princess ancestor, which are problematic stories, I should say, but they did uh, inspire me to explore my own ancestry and explore uh, Native American uh, cultures. And so anyway, I was looking at this Peyote Way Church of God, and I want to share, if I could, a little of that story of the oh, Peyote do. Way Church of God. Yeah, because your your listeners, you know, being interested in these divergent paths, uh, this is a fascinating story. And some of it I, I, I learned when I did that paper, some I learned afterwards. Uh, but this paper I would present at the John Whitmer Historical Association. And I, I should mention that the community, they didn't call it Community of Christ yet. It was the Reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints at the time. And they were significant participants in Sunstone. People like William Russell were really kind of brought me in and uh, encouraged me to come to JWHA and uh, present. And so my first conference paper was this paper on peyote and the word of wisdom. And it was there that I learned uh, that uh, the grandson of Joseph Smith, Frederick, Frederick M. Smith, uh, did a whole uh, sociology dissertation on peyote, including trying it out. Hmm. Uh, and was, you know, the grandson of Joseph Smith, one of the presidents of the Aureolius Church. And I didn't know that at the time uh, until I present after I presented my paper. Uh, but I had caught a connection with RLDS through the sources I'd been looking at, and particularly a, a, a man by the name of uh, John, Jonathan or Jack Koshaway, uh, who founded, he was an RLDS, uh, I believe a former missionary, uh, who founded the Odo Church of the Firstborn in 1914. And uh, helped found the Native American Church in 1917, uh, and Frederick M. Smith and others were basically tutoring him on how to create an established church, uh, and so that model they learned from uh, the RLDS uh, was applied to creating a legal, the first legal institutions uh, for that were Native American churches, and Native the Native American Church would grow to be a, a quite significant Pan-Indian movement. Uh, focused on uh, peyote and mixing it with bits of Christianity hmm. and even some uh, some Pentecostal uh, themes uh, as well. Wow. And uh, the the Peyote Way Church of God itself had so it had that older history of connections with the RLDS, more recently connections with the LDS. And there was a, a man by the name of Emmanuel Trujillo, who was uh, a native a uh, veteran of World War II. And uh, he leaves the, the Native American church in, the, in 1966 over the exclusion of non-Native Korean War veterans from ceremonies. There were some uh, new laws of regulating the use of peyote uh, that restricted it to, you had to be a quarter uh, American Indian by legal definition being able to, to use it. And the Native American church complied with the federal law and, and and many of the people objected, including Trujillo. And so Trujillo uh, leaves the Native American church and founds this uh, all-race branch uh, of the church that he calls the Church of the Holy Light Pentecostal Indian Mission. Hmm. And he founded that in 1975. A couple of years later, that would evolve to become the Peyote Way Church of church. God. Oh. And so you, you get this kind of fascinating intersection of Pentecostalism evangelical Christianity, peyotism, and Mormonism, all kind of 
mixing together and creating this fascinating, uh, really small church that's got a, you know, 160 acres in Arizona where they lead these peyote vision quests. Uh, and the per pres person at the time who was the president, her name was Ann Zapp, and she, was, she had worked with Trujillo to, to found the Peyote Way Church of God, and she would later become the president from 85 to 93, and she was an LDS convert. She'd been a, a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and was kind of taken with the word of wisdom, and so she's the one who introduced the word of wisdom into the Peyote Way Church of God hmm. as, a, as a health code. Uh, and so uh, they saw the word of wisdom, though, as sanctioning the use of herbs. And that's something that early Mormons did, but had kind of fallen out of favor in later Mormonism. Uh, and so the, the word of wisdom became this uh, justification for using peyote. Fascinating. Very interesting. You know, I've, 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 I've done a little research on the Native American church. I knew that there was some Christian influence on the group. I did not know that the RLDS played a role in that, which I find really fascinating. So they're kind of bringing all that together, like you had mentioned before. I got to ask Christopher Thomas of the Church of God, Cleveland, Tennessee, if, uh, if, if, if they've ever been in talks with the Peyote Way Church of God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's a really small group. And they actually published my <laughs> term paper uh, in their, uh, their newsletter and then were selling it online for a number of years. Wow. I made it free online now. It's on my academia page. It's on my social science research network author page. So I'm going to try to provide links to some of the stuff we talked about today in the description, everybody. So, yeah, um, I'll keep on. Yeah. So there's this other group that really got my attention. I, uh, well, it, it kind of happened in a roundabout way. I had a professor at the University of Iowa, uh, who, Nora England, uh, who was doing research in Guatemala, and she had an opportunity to take a few students with her, not, not so much with her as she would be in the same town, and we could work on some independent research projects. And so uh, I applied for a research grant to look at the word of wisdom in, uh, in Guatemala among Mormons there. So it was kind of a follow-up to this work with uh, the Peyote Way Church of God to see how Mayan and Ladino, Ladino are, are people of native ancestry, but are adopted more of the, the Spanish culture. And I uh, see how they interpret the word of wisdom. And I found some fascinating stuff about kind of how traditional, traditional medicine in uh, especially the conceptions of hot and cold are culturally different in Guatemala than they are in the United States. And so there were some interesting interpretations around hot and cold drinks that were evident in, in uh, Guatemala as a basis of that traditional medicine. But one of the things I did when I was in Guatemala is I took this book with me by Eflamon Tulis called Mormons in Mexico. And I read it while I was there. And it included a, a story of a man by the name of Mar Margarito Bautista, who was a Nahua uh, Mormon, uh, from central Mexico. And a couple of years later, I would, uh, now a graduate student at the University of Washington, I would have an opportunity to work on a research project in Oaxaca, in southern Mexico, uh, that Zapotec ethnobiology project I mentioned earlier. And uh, so we were studying the traditional uses of plants and animals in Zapotec culture. And one weekend, I had a long weekend free 
uh, because that, my other research assistant was going back home for a family event and the, the professor leading it was doing something else. And so I had a weekend, long weekend free. And so I took a, a bus to Osumba, Mexico and decided I was going to look for Margarito Bautista and his followers. And I'd read in uh, and, and actually corresponded with Tulis uh, as well. And he had told me that uh, he thought that this group that Margarito Bautista had founded had floundered and disappeared. And, and there had been insinuations of that in, in other books. And so I wasn't expecting to find a thriving community. I was expecting maybe to encounter you know, some people that had previously been involved. Uh, and so I, I show up in Osumba and I start asking about Mormons. And they said, oh, yeah, we got some of those. They live down there and uh, down the street, another town, another colonia. And so I followed those directions and just walked into town. And there was this town of 700 people uh, practicing uh, kind of a fundamentalist variety of Mormonism. They uh, loosely associated with the All Red branch of the AUB, the Apostolic United Brethren. Uh, and uh, it had been founded by Margarito Bautista in the 1930s. Uh, Bautista had been involved in this Mexican schismatic movement that broke away uh, from the LDS church. About a third of Mexican Mormons left the church in the 1930s and founded what they called the Third Convention. And uh, it turned out that this group called uh, El Reino de Dios en su plenitude, or the kingdom of God in its fullness, I was created by Bautista, and he really emphasized the predictions in the Book of Mormon that uh, the Gentiles would go astray in the latter days and that the descendants of the Lamanites would lead the church. And I, the, he felt that the church had gone astray uh, because they would not accept Mexican leaders. That's what the Third Convention was about is that uh, the Third Convention rebelled against the LDS Church because of racial prejudice that led to the exclusion of uh, indigenous Mexicans uh, from church leadership positions. And so they started their own church and led it. And uh, eventually, in the 40s, uh, most of the Third Convention would go back to the LDS Church when there was an effort to reconcile. But uh, a couple of groups would stay separate. One of those was uh, the, the group led by Margarito Bautista and another led by Lorenzo Cuatli and uh, in Puebla. And so I did some ethnographic uh, research uh, with these communities, learning their stories. And that would eventually become part of my uh, doctoral dissertation, uh, looking at indigenous Mormonisms, kind of how indigenous people have interpreted the Book of Mormon. Wow. Um, yeah, I've heard a little bit about the Third Convention. I read about that. I didn't realize that there was still a kind of a fairly large group of people that are um, still part of that group. And obviously, if they're doing more fundamentalist aspects, they're probably have a their birth rate is probably quite high. And so it sounds to me that they'll probably be around for a long time. Yeah. And they've got, you know, a land base there and it, they hold own things in common. They do the United Order. They do uh -huh. plural marriage. 
Uh, and, you know, and they're, they're actually rather affluent compared to the surrounding areas. I mean, they got PhDs and accountants, lawyers, and, you know, I mean, it's, uh, you know, Mexican middle class, I guess would, would be the way to put it. And, but they're all indigenous, indigenous heritage and, uh, you know, just fascinating, mostly Nahua, but there were some Zapotecs and others there too. Uh, and they would consider themselves Lamanites. Yes, they definitely did. Yeah, most certainly. Wow. Um, so, you know, as this journey uh, progresses, it's it's fascinating because you started then studying about some of the issues with DNA and the indigenous populations and Native Americans, and also uh, how it kind of butted heads with the, um, the Book of Mormon. Of course, we we. You, we, we briefly mentioned that earlier, but also that kind of led to you then to be invited to participate in that those series of documentaries that we are talking about. So maybe we could talk a little bit about that. Sure. Yeah. And there's kind of a, an important step towards okay. that. Yeah. So my, my first proposal for my doctoral dissertation, in fact, my first draft for my doctoral dissertation was a little bit different than the final version. My first version I called Blank Pages and Scriptural Tombs. The final version is Imagining Lamanites, Native Americans in the Book of Mormon. But my initially I had proposed uh, to use, uh, to look at the Book of Mormon within the context of other indigenous texts that, that were claimed by indigenous people to be uh, like a Bible. So one of those is the, the Popol Vuh that I encountered in Guatemala, uh, where uh, Guatemalan Mormons were saying, you know, this is a Mayan Bible uh, and reading it alongside the Book of Mormon. Another in the, in the, in, in the United States is this one, Black Elk Speaks, which uh, is a uh, Dakota a medicine man uh, by the name of Nicholas Black Elk, who uh, uh, shares a vision uh, with, a, with a writer, and this becomes this text that's often treated as a Bible. And interestingly, Nicholas Black Elk was Catholic, mm -hmm. uh, and he was, you know, uh, doing a, a, a Catholic catechist traveling around the reservation. At the same time, he's teaching his traditional uh, visions, and, and that's kind of hidden in this book. But and there are other sources that, that show the Christian connections. So I got really kind of fascinated with that, with the Popol Vuh, there's some Christian components to it, with the Black Hawk Speaks, there's some Christian components. And so I was interested in that intersection between indigenous and uh, Christian uh, concepts. But my committee told me, no, that's too much. You should just focus on Mormonism and leave out the Popol Vuh and Black Hawk Speaks. And so I did focus more on Mormonism and uh, yet in recent years, I've got, started going back to these, these themes that I had written material on and uh, updating it and, and, and publishing it now on, on the Popol Vuh and uh, Black Elk Speaks as other scriptures uh, besides the, the Book of Mormon. But the, when I narrowed that dissertation down to Native Americans and the Book of Mormon, uh, I was also very active at the time in kind of this new phenomenon we now know as the internet, right? And in those days, I, it was mostly centered around email. And so email was kind of before we had uh, the, the, the web. And, and on email, we had these listservs. And that became a great way to connect with other uh, people interested in Mormonism. 
and to discuss some difficult controversial issues. So I was part of groups called Mormon L and Elias Net uh, and Irene L and, 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 and various other uh, listservs that became this early way of connecting with, with people. And one of those was a, a man by the name of Brent Metcalf. And Brent Metcalf uh, reached out to me at the, the shortly after the time where my committee had basically said, you need to go back to the drawing board and redo your dissertation, <laughs> redo what you're going to do, reimagine re your dissertation more focused on, on the Book of Mormon and not on Popo Vuh and Black Elk Speaks. And uh, so Brent uh, asked me, he said, you know, there's, there's this new DNA research uh, about Native American origins. And uh, I'm the editor of this uh, journal called Mormon Scripture Studies, a new online journal at the time. And we're looking for an anthropologist or biologist to, to write an article about DNA in the Book of Mormon. Uh, would you be interested or maybe recommend somebody that would? And, and so he knew I knew a little bit about the topic because I'd been talking about it in some of the online forums. And, uh, and you know, it's an important part of my training as an anthropologist. Uh, and so I said, yeah, I think I'll take this on myself. And uh, so I said, yeah, I, I, would, I would do that. And it was a particularly convenient time for me because I had to reconsider how I was going to do my dissertation. And that's how DNA gets its way into it. It wasn't initially part of the plan. It was more kind of humanities oriented than the natural science side of it. And, uh, and so I, I said, all right, I'll, I'll take this on. And I basically did a literature review of uh, the anthropological and biological literature on DNA and its implications for Mormon beliefs about Native American origins. And this, I first, the, 20 years ago this year, I first presented that research at the Sunstone Symposium in Salt Lake City. Mm. And uh, it was uh, at the same time simultaneously published the first peer-reviewed article on DNA in the Book of Mormon. It was called Lamanite Genesis, Genealogy, and Genetics. And it first appeared online uh, in Mormon Scripture Studies. Uh, it was a pretty big hit at Sunstone that summer. There was a huge packed room uh, with the panel discussion on whether uh, DNA, or basically on DNA and its implications for the Book of Mormon. And I was on a panel with uh, Trent Stevens and Jeff Meldrum, who uh, and Britt Metcalf, uh, all of whom would become major players in this discussion of DNA in the Book of Mormon. And uh, that, like I said, came out in 2001. It was a big hit at Sunstone, but things quieted down. I, they, I was asked if, I, if we could put the article into a new book called American Apocrypha. And, uh, and so this is edited by Dan Vogel and Britt Metcalf. And uh, the American Apocrypha uh, article is really what kind of got the word out. You would think that the online publication would have gotten more attention, but it was actually the book. Think, think at that time, you know, there were, not everybody was online. It, it was still a relatively new thing, kind of the cutting edge. And, and so it was really the book that made the big impact. And that's where my article is best known from is from that book. Uh, and that uh... well, I just want to mention to my audience too. Uh, if you're listening to the podcast, um, I've been 
every time that you've been bringing up a book, I've made a point to go split screen and show the audience that the, the books that I have. So, so far I've got six of them that, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I got a little stack of books here too, to show you. <laughs> we, we, I think you and I kind of connect that way. You know, we are kind of bookworms. Uh, and you know, that, you know, one of the reasons I did a PhD, uh, is so that I could read. I had an excuse to read. Uh, and so I, I just, I love that. But uh, kind of back to the the story, I so I as I was working on, I had a chance to edit that article between the online publication and and going into the book, and so there were rumors of uh, this 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 lineage that had been found called the X lineage, and most Native American uh, lineages, match matrilineal lineages, that's along the, the mother side. Uh, were discovered pretty early in the process of identifying uh, lineages. They were called A, B, C, and D. These are the first four lineages identified uh, among human populations. And A, B, C, and D were found in native populations and in uh, Eastern uh, Asia. And so showing the closest relatives uh, to uh, Native Americans were found in North and East Asia. Uh, and a little bit, a little bit in Central Asia too. Uh, and so, those uh, those connections that A, B, C, and D would make up uh, ninety-eight plus percent of Native American uh, genetic heritage. So the DNA uh, lineages that were common in Native American populations were uh, also common in in uh, Eastern Asian populations. And uh, there was one though that was more widespread and that lineage uh, was, is known as the X lineage. It was discovered later. And uh, the, I, had, I was interested in learning more about the X lineage because it was also found uh, in uh, some European and Middle Eastern populations as well as Asian populations and, and native populations. So I was really interested in that lineage. And uh, one researcher working on that was a, working on uh, DNA in Mesoamerican uh, populations with a man by the name of David Glenn Smith. And there were some rumors that maybe he'd found X lineage in, in Mesoamerica. And so I had I emailed him to ask about uh, his data to see if he'd found X lineage there. It turns out it, it wasn't, it was a contamination. Hmm. And uh, the, and he says, and I, I think I mentioned that I was working on research related to the Book of Mormon. And he says, well, that's really interesting. I was just interviewed by uh, some documentary filmmakers about DNA in the Book of Mormon. And I'm like, oh, really? That sounds fascinating. Uh, and I said, do you have contact information for these folks? And uh, so he sent me their contact information for uh, Joel Kramer and Jeremy Reyes. And uh, I reached out to them and said, I hear you're making a documentary. I heard from David Glenn Smith, you're making a documentary on DNA in the Book of Mormon. I've been writing on that. Uh, should we talk? And uh, you know, they would later describe this as kind of a miraculous encounter mm. uh, between us. And uh, the anyway, it led to uh, an agreement to uh, do an interview when I was in Salt Lake City the next time. I uh, this would have been two thousand and two uh, for the Sunstone Symposium, where I was presenting a, a, a paper. And the, when I showed up to the interview, they were doing it in a hotel room. 
and they handed me this piece of paper. And up to the time, I had no idea that this was an evangelical ministry. Okay. I thought that this was all science focused. I'd heard about it from a famous uh, molecular anthropologist and I nowhere in my mind was this associated with evangelicals. So they hand me this uh, consent form that identifies themselves as Living Hope Ministries. I'm like, Living Hope Ministries? I'm like, what, what is this all about? <laughs> I'm like, hesitant. I'm like, okay, what's going on here? And they said, they said yeah, we, we, are, we are evangelicals. And, uh, you know, we're, we are interested in the story of DNA in the Book of Mormon. And they said, we're only interested in the science. You know, that's, that's our focus. We're, we're, you know. And so I was reassured that it was, you know, about the science. And uh, so I signed and I agreed. And I think the fact that I'd had all these positive experiences with the evangelicals and they'd been an important part of my own faith journey. I think that's one of the reasons I agreed to do that. And they began this, this interview that would, you know, kind of document my faith crisis. <laughs> I, I was re-watching that DNA verse of the Book of Mormon and the Bible verse of the Book of Mormon the last couple of days to prepare for this. And it's like, you know, that's, it, it's interesting to see yourself from 20 years ago and see that relive that uh that place i was in at the mm. time i uh, and you know it at the time i i didn't realize how much i would become kind of a star in evangelical communities <laughs> uh and it, it I, I probably would have handled things maybe a little differently i certainly would if i was that interviewed today i'd do little things a little bit differently but overall uh i thought it was a it was a both of those films were pretty good films and they addressed some really important issues and i think for me what i was really struggling with at the time was the sense of betrayal that mormon leaders weren't honest with me you know that i just felt like i had to go to college to learn the truth about my own religious tradition. When I could have just learned it at church, I could have learned it in seminary. I could have learned it at, at LDS institutes, but I had to go to college to, to get it. And so there was this sense of betrayal uh, that I expressed. And this would lead also to a little bit of my criticisms of, of these, these films as well, because for one, that at the end of that DNA versus the Book of Mormon story, after doing a really good job of kind of looking at the different uh, scientists and the, their understanding of, of the evidence, uh, they issue, they end it with this call to, to Jesus that I thought, I thought un undermined the, the scientific credibility. And, you know, they didn't, they, like I say, they reassured me that it was they were going to focus on the science. And that was true for most of the film, but that very ending, I felt like I felt a sense of betrayal from the filmmakers too, mm -hmm. that they hadn't been totally straight with me about what they were doing. Uh, and uh, so I would express that uh, frustration with them later. Uh, and I've done it in, in some writings as well. Uh, and we did come to a better understanding. In fact, 
they invited me later to work on the the Bible versus the Book of Mormon film. And after some discussion, I did agree to to come back. Uh, this time it is, I mean, it's the Bible versus the Book of Mormon. So their faith, their faith perspective is more appropriately in it from the beginning. And 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 I understand that. Uh, the I felt that there were a couple of other things missing in the DNA video. I felt like they didn't address the problems with the Bible and DNA. Mm -hmm. And certainly in my article, Lamanite Genesis, Genealogy and Genetics, we talked about that, or I talked about the evolution, uh, creation conflicts, uh, talked about uh, the fact that we share more than 98% of our DNA with chimpanzees. Uh, and none of that stuff made it in the in the film. And these gentlemen are, would be considered young earth creationists, right? Well, you know, I asked them that and they said not for us, not so much for them personally, they said, mm -hmm. uh, but for their audience, they said it's predominantly young earth creationists. Mm -hmm. And so I think they were more nuanced, kind of like you are in terms of at least what they expressed to me. I hope I'm not misrepresenting their perspective, okay. but they, they should speak for themselves. They'd be great guests to, to speak for themselves on here but you know that i uh wish that they had in in addressed especially the timing the timing of of the the dna evidence because from native american perspectives what's interesting about the dna evidence is it shows that uh people have been here since time immemorial for 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 very 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 long the dna evidence shows that Natives have been here much longer than anthropologists previously thought based upon the archeological record. Uh, and in fact, it's led to a, a resurgence of revisiting archeolo older archeological sites that were considered controversial. Uh, when I was a student are now being reconsidered and I keep pushing the timing of the, of, of the peopling of the Americas way back, uh, uh, tens of thousands of years. And, uh, and so, DNA evidence has had a big impact on how anthropologists have understood uh, Native America, and none of that makes it into the film. The other thing that didn't make it into the film is any, any real Native perspectives. And so when I got that interview request uh, to, to go to New York, I had been at the time working with a, another uh, filmmaker by the name of Angelo Baca. Angelo Baca's Navajo and Hopi uh, and uh, raised Mormon. And he and I had begun corresponding when he heard about uh, me in the news. And uh, I basically thought, well, you know, if they're gonna do another film, they really need some native perspectives in it. And I should say that I did play a role of introducing them to a fair number of the people they interviewed, okay? Uh, and among them was, was Angelo. And so I said, I'll come to New York with you if, if you will uh, cover, and they'd offered to cover my expenses. And I said, well, if you also cover the expenses of my colleague, Angelo Baca, and uh, he can work on his film uh, at the same time. And so they agreed to that. And Angelo uh, came and they interviewed him. He appears in a few uh, portions of their film, uh, but he also had the chance to make his own film called In Layman's Terms, Looking at Lamanite Identity. And that one, I think, does a better job of representing my perspective than does uh, the either of the films made by Living Hope Ministries. 
And, you know, so those who are curious about my perspective should, and about native perspectives on these issues in general should check out in layman's terms. And it's available uh, online at Culture Unplugged. But uh, that their willingness to bring him along uh, helped me to, to agree to continue to be involved. Then they later invited me to go to Central America with them to Mexico and uh, Guatemala, Honduras. And this time, uh, coincidentally, my wife's coworker was getting married in uh, Mexico around the same time. And we were trying to figure out how we could afford to go to Mexico to go to her wedding. And this opportunity comes up to, to go with, uh, with Living Hope Ministries to Central America and Mexico. And so I, I worked out a deal with them with, that they would bring uh, Carrie along. And, uh, and they did in, do some interviewing of her. And uh, they also uh, paid for our flights to go to that, that wedding. So uh, it did work out quite well for us. And I will say that I, I love that film. the Bible versus the Book of Mormon in, in many respects, because the, the thing that it does that needed to be done is it shows the sharp contrast between the lack of archeological, linguistic, cultural, and biological data uh, and the story in the Book of Mormon uh, and uses the Bible as a, a comparison and contrast. And, you know, again, if I had done it, I would have been more honest about some of the difficulties with the early books of the Bible that don't have as much archaeological support. And they ignored that, but they did focus on the fact that certainly the New Testament scenes in the Book of Mormon, and I mean, in the Bible, uh, and later parts of the Old Testament, there's ample, ample historical archaeological evidence that those people existed, that the issues that are addressed were there, that the animals and plants that are described in the Bible are present in those places. Uh, and just not, there's nothing like that at all in, in the Americas. Uh, and, you know, I think for those that, that want to understand Rod Meldrum, who you've got coming on next week, I think watching that video, those two videos, those two videos, I think were crucial in uh, developing his uh, his narrative, so he regularly refers, especially to the DNA video in his his book, and I think he's trying to respond to that evangelical perspective there, and I think uh, it's an important part of the the story of evangelical Mormon interactions. Yeah, it um, is. Rod, yeah, Rod does talk about that extensively. He did. I think he saw like at a general conference, somebody was holding up a sign, you know, the DNA and it doesn't, it disproves the Book of Mormon. And that really upset him and mm -hmm. kind of put him on that journey. And so then you have Hugh and you have Simon Southerton and you had Rob Meldrum in yeah. generally the same period of time, kind of grappling with the DNA evidence and then coming out with different views. Now, uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to, to having this conversation with Rod. I talked to with him on the phone last week. And, you know, what we're going to do is I'm going to let Rod give his, present his side. And then, um, then, then Tom, Thomas is going to watch our interview. And then Thomas and I are going to have a conversation. Now, this is not to be about doing a takedown or anything like that. It's just to have a dialogue. And so for those of you who um, enjoy Rod Meldrum's work and stuff like that, 
um, I think it's important that you just kind of hear the full perspective. Um, the the differing maybe there's differing worldviews and perspectives that may might be at conflict, but also let's try to do it in a civil way, which is what I'm trying to do with this channel: is have civil discourse to get amongst people that don't necessarily agree with each other. And just so you know, uh, I'm talking a little too much than I normally do, but I facilitated a phone call with John DeLynn and Rod Meldrum last week. And if you can't think of anybody more disparate than that and got them on the phone talking. And I think that's important that we are able to do that. And I was honored that I was able to facilitate something like that. And Thomas, I know you had mentioned that part of the reason you wanted to come on my channel was because I guess just the, the spirit of it or what I'm trying to accomplish. And, um, you know, I, I'm really honored that you uh, chose to tell this part of your story uh, on here. Um, but I'd like to know um, the, the gentleman that you did the, the series with, uh, are you still in contact with them or have they proposed any other future projects? And I also bring up how you talked at like at the Discovery Institute and other evangelical settings as well. Yeah. Yeah, so they uh, they did do a couple of more films and that actually I haven't watched, I must admit. Uh, and they invited me to be a part of them. And they were on Joseph Smith uh, versus the Bible and polygamy, uh, something about polygamy. And well, there were a couple of reasons I declined those requests. Uh, one, one reason was that I... Although I, I really did like the film, I do think that it didn't fully represent my point of view. I think the, the, the fact that I was still proud of my Mormon heritage, but willing to talk about the difficult issues, I, they didn't seem to leave that as a viable alternative. And so each time I would try to explain who I am and why I do what I do, I'd kind of get cut off. And so they, they try to make it, make it seem like the only way to resolve these issues is to leave the, the, the Mormon faith and uh, rather than, you know, to consider more nuanced uh, approaches to the, the faith that I represented uh, or, you know, a pride in my heritage. I'm not a, you know, an active member of the LDS church in the sense that I go to church every week, but uh, I am very actively involved in uh, Mormon communities or was at that time and but that kind of leads to the second reason I declined that is that I my other parts of my career were just like blossoming and going off uh, and I was I was so busy that I just didn't have the time especially to to travel and uh, it, it, it was sacrificing this event environmental anthropology program I was building with Coast Salish Nations that was just an incredible part of my career and experience and so I, I did decline those opportunities to, to continue to be involved. And we are not still in contact, but I, I would love to look them up and uh, see, you know, and if I can, I'd be happy to introduce them to you. I think you, they, they would like your channel. And that kind of reminds me, one of the people that have appeared in that film that I am occasionally in contact with now is, is Philip Lindholm, and the author of this book, Latter-day Descent. So he's in that the Bible versus the Book of Mormon film, and I, one of, he was one of the several people that I introduced to Joel and uh, Scott uh, from Living Hope Ministries, and I, he, I met him at academic conferences. So I was at 
in the American Academy of Religion Pacific Northwest Region Conference and met Phil Lindholm. And he was, uh, like you, he was an evangelical interested in dialogue with Mormons. And I think that's the real strength of your, your channel is that dialogue. And, you know, hearing his perspective as somebody who, who uh, has, has been on this path uh, as well, and what he did in this book is he interviewed myself and the September 6th, the people that were excommunicated in 1993 uh, to tell our stories. And I, I've kind of left out that excommunication encounter. I actually didn't get excommunicated. Uh, the, the church attempted to excommunicate me and backed off in response to the media pressure. And so that he captures kind of a, an, an interview with me right at, after the, the fact of those events. So it's a powerful, important historical uh, source for that, for that story. Uh, I was also invited to, in addition to presenting at these academic conferences, I was invited to present at a few evangelical events. Uh, one of those was that I really enjoyed was the Help for the Herding Conference in Keokuk, Iowa in, in 2003. And there I presented a paper that's available online. It's called Double, Double Helix reading scripture in a genomic age. And it's on my social science research network, author page and academia page. And, you know, it's kind of also a, a reflection on these evangelical encounters of my childhood, although not all of them, this I've shared more with you. Uh, and, uh, and because it was help for the hurting, it was also the story of the abuse that I experienced in my, my home from my stepfather. And, uh, and, and how that affected my approach to, to religion. And it was a very moving conference because of, you know, a lot of, a lot of the reason that I struggled with, with Mormonism is that I grew up in a, in a violent household where religion was used as a weapon. And, you know, it wasn't until I got to college and had these experiences that I really started to see that religion could be something different and that it didn't have to be a weapon. And, and again, I, and, and, and I had seen that in my evangelical family members, you know, that, that didn't have that violence in the home and, you know, seen, seen a, a loving uh, a, approach to the gospel. And so those, th that was a, a really moving conference. I met Sandra and Gerald Tanner there. Uh, I met a number of other uh, important uh, evangelicals. But in that, in sharing my story, I did not and will not uh, misrepresent, qualify myself. Okay, I talked about evolution. I talked about uh, the, you know, my experience during the war, where I uh, was, I wanted to be the atheist in a pot. In a, in a foxhole, you know, because people told me there were no atheists in the foxhole, I was bound and determined that I was going to be an atheist in the foxhole. And although my views have evolved since then, uh, those were important parts of my life. And uh, I shared that forthrightly. I got a lot of pushback from not so much the conference organizers as members of the audience who I uh, thought that, that evolution came from the devil and, you know, really went after me. And I had, you know, uh, Similar, I did an evangelical conference here in the Seattle area that included a lot of that Discovery Institute people. And again, I got pushed back, 
But, you know, one of the things is, is that when I would have private conversations with a lot of the organizers, I, I, I heard from them that there was a lot of nuance, a lot of, there's plenty of people that are not young earth creationists within uh, the evangelical community. Uh, and certainly in, in my generation and the younger generations that I, I found that that was quite common. It was usually the older generations that were pushing back. Uh, and nonetheless, I didn't get too many of these opportunities because I wasn't going to misrepresent myself. They could do that in the film. They could, you know, give a, just a, a, a certain picture of me that makes me, makes me a celebrity in evangelical communities, but it isn't the true me. Okay. It's a portion of me. And so when they meet me in person, it's more complex and the, 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 the more nuanced picture comes out. And so I, I did not make a career out of <laughs> speaking at evangelical conferences because I was too honest. Yeah. And so that, you know, that's what I like about your channel is that I think that you're attempting to do what I was wishing more evangelicals were doing then. And I think people were trying, people were trying, but it, it's a struggle because of your audience, because you get pushed back from your audience too. Yeah, yeah, I'm starting to get on a couple people's radars now, and uh, some fairly well known, and that's fine. Um, I really just expected just to have a little book review channel and <laughs> talk about books in my collection. I, I just want to show the audience I showed you earlier about how um, this was the bookshelf wasn't a whole entirely Mormon books. And then as the shows progressed, I've gotten this whole section of more books over there that's representative of many of the books that I've received from authors and publishers and a few others that I've collected recently, but that's all since the, <laughs> the book review channel started. Yeah. So I'm never going to be able to review all the books in my collection. That's a lost cause. Well, I do hope you get back to some book reviews because I like those episodes too. But yeah. the author, uh, author and, uh, you know, interviews and scholar interviews are, are really helpful as well. Yeah, no, it's and, been and, great. Yeah. An and, important and, niche. Yes. And I will, just so my audience knows, we're going to start filming season two of the book reviews next month. So hopefully by mid-November, early December, we'll have some more book reviews for everybody. So yeah. excited about that. Um, you know, Thomas, um, was there anything else that you wanted to uh, maybe yeah. include about your encounters with the evangelicals? Yes, well, this is not so much evangelicals as encounters with the various forms of oh, uh, yeah. the faith. Yeah, so uh, of the restoration. So one of the invitations was I was asked to be the spring spring banquet uh, speaker for the uh, Community of Christ. So that had been the RELDS and now are the Community of Christ. Uh, that was in uh, 2004. And so it was right before the opening of the World Conference. And I was asked to come speak on DNA in the Book of Mormon. And so what, for one thing that for those interested in the varieties of the restoration, what it shows is the openness of the community of Christ to the difficult issues. And I had really felt that, that warmth and willingness to, to confront difficult issues uh, in, in my encounters with, with uh, community of Christ and RLDS members. And so it was an honor to be able to accept that invitation and I was able to be my whole self. And I did a presentation called Sin, Skin, and Seed, Mistakes of Men in the Book of Mormon. And it's still one of my favorite articles. And it's available, again, on my uh, SSRN and Academia pages and in the journal of uh, the John Whitmer Historical Association. 
right? And to it, it deals very forthrightly with the biblical issues, uh, as well as uh, the Book of Mormon issues. Uh, and they, you know, in that audience were their apostles, and I think even the president of the church was there, uh, and in uh, and, and many, many other people, and they were very cordial uh, and listened, asked great questions. And I didn't get the pushback that I got uh, at, at some of the evangelical conferences. So I, for me, that was a really uh, warming experience. But you know I, that's kind of the 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 really big parts of the encounters with evangelicals. There's a little stuff that comes up much more recently, uh, but I if if it's all right, I'll tell you just how my career evolved since then. Yeah, yeah, if that's okay. Yeah. yeah. So you know, as I mentioned, I had been having tremendous success in other areas of of my life. I started this job at Edmonds Col Community College, and uh, I started doing what we call community-based anthropology, and that's working really with the community to identify their issues and concerns and developing uh, the curriculum and especially service learning oriented projects uh, around community-based needs. So I was working very close, closely with Coast Salish nations, with uh, government agencies and nonprofits. And uh, in my uh, American Religious Diversity courses, I was also working with the nonprofits associated with a lot of different faith traditions in our community and getting students out involved in the community. And I just didn't have time to do both that and Mormon studies. So I took a very long vacation from Mormon studies. And much to my regret, I donated uh, my book collection at the time uh, to Eco Encore, which was an environmental nonprofit. And uh, thousands and thousands of dollars worth of books. <laughs> and uh, so a lot of people who bought books on the used market might very well have my former books. And you'll recognize them because I wrote all over in them. Uh, and, uh, and some of those notes are, are out there in, in that uh, secondhand book market. But uh, I would have to rebuild that when I decided later uh, to to go back into Mormon studies. And that really kind of the impetus for that, a couple of things happened. I, I kept getting invitations to write. I wrote a, a review of Paul Gutjar's uh, book on the Book of Mormon. And I realized that the same problems that I'd been talking about and trying to address in you know, a decade before or more, uh, the lack of sufficient representation of native voices in discussions of the Book of Mormon were still a problem. Uh, you know, whether it was Terrell Gibbons or Paul Guchar, they completely ignore Native American perspectives on the Book of Mormon. And that's what the book is supposed to be about, Native people. And so that, uh, that was still a problem. Uh, and I felt, you know, I, I had started to be this bridge between Native communities and, and Mormonism and and I, you know, developed at, 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 the, at Edmonds, I'd become this bridge between Native communities and the, the academia. Uh, and so I thought, well, maybe there's, a, maybe there's still a need out there, because uh, my hope and dream, and it, it really is starting to happen now, is that uh, Native uh, scholars uh, will take this on, and, and, and they don't need somebody like me as a bridge. 
Uh, and, you know, we're seeing some great stuff now from Native scholars like uh, Farina King and Elise Boxer and Angelo Baca and uh, Arcia Tecun, uh, Moroni Benali, uh, that are really doing some really cutting edge work on the Book of Mormon. And I can help connect you with any of those folks for, for an interview. Yeah. Uh, but the when I, I kind of made that decision uh, to, to start doing Mormon studies again, I had to rebuild my library, which I'm still doing. Uh, and I, I kind of told the, the well, I, I, I started partnering with native uh, authors. Uh, and so uh, Angelo Baca that I'd worked with on that film in layman's terms, we, we had talked many times about doing a project on uh, repatriation and addressing repatriation issues because one of the really problematic aspects of the, of the Book of Mormon story is that Joseph Smith is really engaging in grave robbery of native graves in the story. I mean, the whole idea that you got the Moroni, this treasure guardian slash angel, and we're there, he's taking things from his grave. You know, if those gold plates had actually existed, who would they belong to? They wouldn't have belonged to Joseph Smith. They'd belong to the Seneca. And so that's an issue that, that really needed attention. And so Angelo and I wrote a, an essay called Rejecting Racism in Any Form, Our Latter-day Saint Religion, Rhetoric, and Repatriation, and published it in Open Theology. That was kind of my first uh, published article. Not the first I wrote. They, came, they got published out of order. But the first published article is I came back into Mormon Studies uh, and then I partnered with a group of uh, Native scholars in this book called Decolonizing Mormonism. It's edited by Gina Colvin, uh, who is Maori, uh, and Joanna Brooks, who, like me, has some distant Native ancestry. And uh, this is an excellent book for uh, looking at Indigenous perspectives on Mormonism. That led to an invitation to work with uh, scholars at BYU uh, that were invited to a, a uh, panel or a seminar at BYU that produced this book called Essays on American Indian and Mormon History. This book uh, won the Best Anthology Award from the John Whitmer Historical Association last year. And uh, is a this, I think, is the most important book on the Book of Mormon uh, to be published in this century and maybe ever. Uh, I think the article in here by Elise Boxer, a Dakota historian, about the Book of Mormon and settler colonialism is one that everyone should read. Uh, there's also, that I think that your audience will find quite interesting, are the, and, and certainly the Heartland group would find quite interesting, are, is my article and uh, that by Laurie Taylor about Haudenosaunee or Iroquois traditions related to the Book of Mormon. So like the Heartland group, uh, I've been turning to back to North America, even though I have all this experience and work in Central America, I think that there are issues and concerns uh, in North America that are better connections to the Book of Mormon uh, in, than, than we see in Mesoamerica and that have been ignored by this turn to Mesoamerica by Book of Mormon studies. And so I think the difference between my approach and that of Heartland is that Laurie and I are looking at 19th and 20, 18th, 19th, 20th century uh, Iroquois and Mormon 
uh, thought. And, and I've been turning particularly to native Christian communities. Uh, it turns out that Joseph Smith actually had some really significant connections to uh, native Christian communities and his family. Uh, the, these occur through uh, Moore's Indian Charity School, which was a missionary training program uh, by Eliezer uh, Wheelock, uh, who was what they, during the Second Great Awakening, they called themselves New Light uh, preachers, but essentially they were an evangelical approach uh, to, to Christianity. I, I don't think historians necessarily called it evangelical at that time, but it's kind of precursors to, to what the evangelical and Pentecostal movements. And uh, Wheelock was training uh, missionaries, uh, native students, one of them, Samson Oakham, who many people think is a, uh, the model for Samuel the Lamanite in the Book of Mormon. And Samson Oakham uh, was the first native student at uh, Morris Charity School. And he uh, was a Mohegan, uh, eventually becomes a preacher and, and travels around. Uh, we have his we have his diaries, we have some of his sermons, we have his writings. Uh, and I've started to read the Book of Mormon within the context of that, within the context of native Christian movements. And particularly because it, there's that strong connection through Moore's Charity School, and that would later evolve into Dartmouth uh, University, Dartmouth College. Uh, and, uh, you know, some of Joseph Smith's relatives, uh, one of them, John Smith, he was related to both his parents, uh, Lucy, Mac, Lucy Mack and uh, Joseph Sr. Uh, and he was a professor there. Uh, and uh, then Hiram, Joseph Smith's brother, uh, went to school at Indian, the Moore's Indian Charity School. Uh, and a lot of Mormon theology uh, comes out of uh, John Smith's lectures in theology and science uh, at uh, Dartmouth. And so this interesting intersection between in indigenous Christianities and Mormonism uh, is what I'm exploring now. And so I'm kind of coming back to that, uh, a new, my new encounters with uh, evangelical uh, Christianity is, is through that lens. And when you start reading the Book of Mormon within the context of these writings by indigenous Christians is fascinating. Totally new perspectives come up on topics like the curse, the curse that's so controversial in the Book of Mormon, the curse of a dark skin for wickedness. Well, in Samuel Kirkland, the, uh, one of the missionaries trained at uh, Morse Charity School, I, he records in his journals stories of discussions of uh, curses among uh, his Oneida uh, followers. Oneida, I should mention, is one of the, is the only ethnic group clearly named in the Book of Mormon, although it's a place name in the Book of Mormon. Uh, and in uh, Kirkland's dialogue with Oneida elders, uh, they discuss the possibility that they might be cursed. They pose it as a question to the missionary. It's like, well, you know, we've done all the things that you've been teaching us. We, uh, we've adopted 
cattle and sheep and goats. We're doing raising livestock. We're using plows like uh, Christ, you, you Christians do. Uh, we believe in Jesus. We've accepted Jesus. We're, this is part, part of our faith tradition. We're doing everything a Christian ought to be doing. But somehow the settlers nearby are the ones getting rich and we're getting poor. They're getting wealthy and we're suffering. Are we under some type of curse? That's the question. Hmm. Are we under a curse? And in that context, you can see settler colonialism might very well be that curse, right? And of course, in the Book of Mormon, these discussions of the curse also appear, but in the Book of Mormon, it's associated with skin color. I couldn't find anywhere in those diaries of these missionaries that it's ever associated with skin color. I have a quick question for you. Um, at the time, the, the, in the vernacular of the time, they would refer to Native Americans as red, red mm -hmm. men colored red. And why would the Book of Mormon use the term dark as opposed to red? Yeah, that's an excellent question. And you know what I what I think is going on there is that the the real influence uh, in Joseph Smith's environment for the idea that a, a curse is a is a dark skin that uh, that comes from the justifications for slavery the way that the Bible was read in a way that was used to to justify the enslavement of Africans and so that the the darker skin of, of Africans really kind of plays a key role into that. And uh, so I think he's adopting kind of this racist rhetoric around uh, Africans and adapting it and applying it to, to native ancestors. Uh, and, and so I think that's why you see the black skin uh, where, you know, he could have said red skin or something like that. And you know, um, and you, of course, it would be deeply offensive. But. Oh, of course, yeah. And then, and of course, then it reminds me of the story of Black Pete in mm -hmm. the early days of Kirtland, how they all kind of considered him almost like a Native American because he was like their closest person that they could identify as Native American and kind of followed him in that regard. Yeah. yeah and there's, you know, there's definitely a lot. So part of what I'm trying to do is trying to use Native Christian voices. Uh, from the time period around Joseph Smith yeah. uh, to open up our ways of interpreting the Book of Mormon. Uh, so I see it as a 19th century document mm -hmm. uh, and I see it as uh, Joseph Smith's reflections on uh, his own environment and, and kind of projecting back into ancient America, the struggles that he's experiencing in his own community. Uh, and so it's not surprising that you have characters like Samson Oakham that are very much like Samson Sam, or Samuel the Lamanite that are very much like Samson Oakham. Uh, and that's just one of many, many, many uh, Book of Mormon characters that resemble historical people. Uh, and, uh, you know, that, that's the topic that I'm, I'm working on now. I, if I could, I'd like to just mention a few other yeah, uh, publications because if this is book reviews, right? That's right. Yeah, <laughs> there are a go. couple of other things that I, I've been working on that might be of interest. Uh, in this book, the LDS uh, Gospel Topic Series, uh, a scholarly engagement from signature books 
uh, Angelo Baca and I come back together and write a, an article reflecting, reflecting on DNA in the Book of Mormon uh, from indigenous perspectives and respond in particular to the Elias Gospel Topics essay on DNA in the Book of Mormon. And uh, you know, for, for Rod Meldrum, if you're reading this, I do have a critique of your perspective. In fact, the, the church essay itself is quite critical of your perspective. So, you know, love to hear your thoughts on, on what uh, you think of that uh, church essay, uh, as well as Angelo and my uh, perspectives. And uh, the, another, this is more of a literary publication, a lot of poetry, a lot of uh, prose, I kind of on that more creative side of my writing. This book came out from uh, Tory House Press in Utah. It's called Blossom as the Cliff Rose, uh, Mormon Legacies, Mormon Legacies in the Beckoning Wild. Uh, and this is a series of, 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 again, poetry and prose about uh, environmental issues. And the article I wrote in here is a personal story about struggling with the grave robbery in Mormon uh, traditions, not just in the origin stories, but in Mormon practice. Uh, and the, the looting that is commonplace in places like uh, Bears Ears National Monument and uh, you know, working closely with people like uh, Angelo, who, who works for Utah Dene Vikia, the group that's been advocating for Bears Ears National Monument. Uh, and hearing that, the stories of, of Mormons looting these archaeological sites uh, kind of address that issue. And I tell the story of my some of my work in, in Hope, what, what uh, many people call Hopewell or in we call Middle Woodland uh, sites and my encounters with encountering human remains in an archaeological site uh, in Iowa. And so that might also be of interest to some of your readers. And a few things I got coming up, an article in the Journal of Mormon Social Science Association on, uh, I call it an Indian princess in a Mormon Sacagawea, and I wrote it with my wife and daughter. We look at Mormon stories of uh, native ancestry uh, and in, among genealogists and the way that in our own families that kind of the way that the racism is, subtle forms of racism are built into those stories and kind of deconstructing that racism for ourselves and hopefully for, for other Mormons who wrestle with these issues. And then I've got a, a, an article coming out in the Journal of Mormon History next summer uh, on an insufficient canon, the Popol Wuzh and the Book, Book Mormon and other scriptures. And that's revisiting my work in Guatemala from more than 20 years ago. Uh, but looking at it uh, in the context of, again, indigenous Christian encounters in uh, the 16th century in Guatemala, and looking at the interaction between missionaries, Dominican missionaries, and uh, uh, Quiche Maya elders, and the way that that helped create the Book of Mormon, or the Popol Vuh. And uh, the, the, the Popol Vuh would be used by Mormons to uh, validate the Mesoamerican model, but when you actually go back and look at the earliest writings, the references to an Israelite heritage or to the Tower of Babel or uh, other biblical stories in uh, the Popovu and other Kiche Maya texts were understood more allegorical 
than literal. And subsequent uh, interpreters would start to, to see what was initially an allegory uh, or an analogy uh, as being literally true. And so I think that that intersection between Christian missionaries and indigenous peoples created this flourishing of questions about the Bible, questions about how is it that the Bible could be silent about two continents full of people. Uh, and in, in a way, it unsettles uh, scripture. And I, I'm reading the Book of Mormon now within that context of these indigenous writings that are trying to, to make sense out of a, a biblical world in which they're absent. So, and then it just kind of, what have you done much work on like the idea that a lot of people in America thought that the, maybe the, the mounds were built by the 10 lost tribes of Israel to have that kind of interaction going on too? Oh, yes, yes. And, uh, and you know, that was a part, big part of my dissertation. So uh, those interested in the topic, my dissertation, Imagining Lamanites, Native Americans in the Book of Mormon, it's available for free many places on the internet. My author pages are the best place to start uh, at Social Science Research Network and Academia. And uh, there, you know, kind of look at the development of uh, this idea. It, it really emerged in the aftermath of the Revolutionary War, okay? Uh, and in this context, you've got the Haudenosaunee, which are the Iroquois nations or of Western New York, okay? And this is the area that, that Joseph Smith and his family would come into. Uh, and that area before uh, the Revolutionary War was uh, controlled uh, by the, the Seneca, one of those uh, six nations. Uh, and the uh, as basically in the Revolutionary War, the Seneca and the Mohawk uh, include my ancestors fought on the side of, of the British crown and not on the American Revolutionary side. And uh, they end up getting displaced from Western New York. And this enables uh, settler colonialists to, to move in. And uh, as the as settler colonialists came in, you know, predominantly from Europe, coming into Haudenosaunee territory, they started encountering uh, all these evidences of advanced civilization. Uh, and you know what what they understood as advanced civilization uh, would be, you know, monumental structures, mounds, uh, roads, uh, and these elements they start encountering. And then they're like, well, where did they come from? And people were so prejudiced at the time. This is, you know, in the immediate after where they've been at war with, with, with Iroquois. Uh, and so they were very prejudicial and, and you know, viewed native people as, as savage. And so they couldn't imagine that the, the people that they just conquered in, in war uh, were capable of creating these advanced civilizations. Uh, but in fact, uh, Haudenosaunee were, uh, and uh, the what emerges is this mythology that uh, 
justifies colonization. Uh, and so the, the story as it evolves in various forms is that the, there was once an ancient white race in the Americas uh, that are called the mound builders uh, that uh, built the mounds and then were wiped out by the ancestors of American Indians. So the, the Seneca, for example. Uh, and then that really helped colonists from Europe to justify what they had done, which was really a Holocaust, a genocide uh, against indigenous people. And by saying, well, it looks like you guys did this too. Looks like uh, Indians did this to, to a, an ancient white race. So it's not quite so bad that, that we did it to you. And so it becomes this justification for, for, for a Holocaust. Uh, and uh, it's not well-grounded in evidence, although I will say some interesting things. That is that in the Canargua Valley where Joseph Smith was growing up, he did encounter uh, artifacts of European manufacture. Uh, they were scattered uh, around uh, Ganondigan because there's been a big battle at Ganondigan uh, in the 17th century. Uh, Ganondigan is a Seneca, old Seneca village site uh, that's about a dozen miles from uh, Palm, Palmyra and Hilcomora. Kind of, Hilcomora is kind of in between Palmyra and, uh, and uh, Ganondigan. And uh, in this Ganargua Valley where Joseph Smith used to treasure hunt and hang out, uh, there were uh, mixtures of items of European manufacture with native uh, arrowheads and native technologies and so on. They were all interspersed. They were interspersed because the Seneca had been using European trade goods for 200 years. And not only had they been using European trade goods for you know, two centuries, uh, but they'd been preferentially burying them with the dead. And so the treasure hunters such as Joseph Smith and others would encounter these, these artifacts of European manufacture uh, in the mounds, in their fields, uh, when they're digging, when they're digging wells, when they're looking for treasure, uh, when they're digging graves, they would encounter these items and mixed together. And so that became uh, evidence that, oh, these were really white people, okay? The, the mound builders were really white people uh, because they had European uh, plants, animals, and technology. And so what you see in the Book of Mormon is this uh, projection of European plants, technology, uh, and animals and Christianity into ancient, ancient America. And the, uh, the problem is now when we look at the archeological record, you know, you get below those early layers where the European trade goods are mixed in with the native artifacts and European trade goods are no longer present. Uh, and so in ancient America, we just don't find uh, the evidence that we would need to establish that type of uh, society in the Americas. So that's kind of a, yeah. a little overview. I've always, yeah, I've, you know, it's, it is a fascinating uh, story in history. And folks, you know, I just, the purpose of this channel, of course, I mentioned earlier, is to bring all perspectives to the floor. And I thought it was important that I have an anthropologist on to kind of talk about 
some of the aspects of how they view um, these various cultures, whether it's in Central America or in North America, um, some of the proposed areas where the Book of Mormon events may have transpired. And, but I also then want the faithful voices uh, to be heard on this channel as well, so they can give their perspective. Um, you know, I really appreciate Thomas, you coming on. I, this has gone a little longer than I expected, which I'm glad it did. Um, and it, it's funny folks, because my mom called in the middle of this. So I had to pause it. And so I'm going to try to get these edited together. I might have Rick Bennett or, or my assistant do it. So hopefully we'll get this up and running when I, when I want to, but, um, you know, was I, I just want to ask you, uh, Thomas, did you have any like any any final words or any other things that you would like to uh, talk about before we uh, ju jump to part two next week? <laughs> well, I would like to thank you for creating this place for dialogue. And I think it's really awesome that you're bringing diverse perspectives across the uh, well between evangelicals and Mormons, for one, and 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 you're the umbrella that you're using for Mormonism is incredible and you know resonates with me uh, in terms of my scholarly career but I think that uh, it's fascinating to talk to each other and to to hear uh, these stories and so I just really appreciate what you're doing and you know I certainly hope to uh, approach our future conversations with cordiality and respect for uh, people who have different points of view yeah. I think that that's a valuable contribution. Yeah, I think uh, the time and place that we live in right now, really, that's our only hope at this point is to be able to have civil dialogue and have these conversations because I just, you know, every time I can hardly watch the news anymore because of just this world that we're living in. But, um, you know, I do have faith, though, that we can get through this. America has gone through tough times before and the world has as well. And I think that we can, we can get through them. And, but, you know, one of the things too, I actually, since I have you on, um, First of all, I always felt really bad in history, in the American history, that the, the, the plight of the Native Americans is an undertold story. And mm -hmm. so often, I just feel really bad. I feel like if anybody really got the rawest deal, it's them. I feel so bad, you know, and I feel like that we have, it's a national sin that we have yet to um, uh, reconcile with. And that's just kind of my commentary. It's always bothered me. It's always bothered me. Um, I just had a quick question for you. Um, Native American, I believe his name, Native American activist, Russell Means, mm -hmm. um, he always insisted on being called an Indian and not any other name, partly because of the way the treaties were set up. I just wanted you to, since I have you, I just wanted you to comment on that, where, where he's coming from yeah. and what you, what you think about it. Yeah, a great, great question. You know, what is the appropriate terminology? Because Indian is a misnomer, right? It's a mistake that Columbus made. And, uh, you know, so it's often derided for that purpose. Uh, but it is also a legal term that the United States government has used. Uh, and so it is legally defined. So it's not something that's going to go away until laws change, a significant amount of laws and treaties are part of those. And so I, American Indian uh, is a very has a very specific meaning. Somebody who signed uh, treaties and uh, in depending on the law, it, it isn't always the same in different laws, but it's often associated with a quarter or more uh, ancestry in in some of the laws. And and so that is a very specific term. Uh, you you see the rise, especially in recent years of, of Native American as an alternative. That's sometimes rejected by Native communities themselves. 
Uh, and more recently, you've seen the term indigenous become more uh, common, and you, you, you heard, certainly heard me using that term. There's resistance in, in American Indian communities to that too, but it, it's quite common in, among indigenous scholars. Uh, so there's no perfect term, I guess, is the, the way to put it. And I think out of respect, I try to use the, use the terms that people use to refer to themselves. Uh, and although I'm probably not that good when I use the term Mormon, because <laughs> there's a similar sort of question, right? Is that you use the word Mormon or is that a, a, a victory for Satan, right? <laughs> and I, so I struggle with that one too, because yeah. I, when, I refer, when I'm referring to the LDS church, I try to remember to use Latter-day Saint or uh you know, and then use Mormon for more of an umbrella term. Uh, and, you know, I certainly identify myself as someone of Mormon heritage, and I'm, I'm proud of that. And, and so I use that as a self-identifier, even if uh, uh, President Nelson doesn't like the term. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, it works for me. It works for the Mormon Social Science Association, works for the Mormon History Association. Exactly. And the Mormon Studies uh, programs that, that I work with around the country. Yeah. And even I was cognizant of it when I took the name Mormon book reviews, but because of the encompassing nature of the channel, it, when I say Mormon, I mean the whole perspective and one word, you know, including believers in the Book of Mormon who wouldn't necessarily use the term, but Mormon is all encompassing. So that's kind of why I use the term, but, you know, it is, I try my best to use the right terminologies and the right names and titles. And, and so, you know, I think that is important that people should be called what they want to be called. Um, even when, of course, now with the gender, um, you know, people with their preferred gender pronouns, that's, those are things that we need to be cognizant of that, uh, that it's a different world than what we grew up in. And we just got to learn to adapt and try to be understanding of people who are different than us. And I think that's part of what I'm trying to do with, with this channel um, and everything. So, well, Thomas, we, we had a great conversation today and I'm looking forward to us taping type two. So just so you know, Rob Meldrum is going to be coming on next week. And Rod's going to, I'm giving him a platform to discuss uh, his views. And, you know, Thomas, you and I had a nice conversation about him the other day. And I feel like you have the right spirit about how we're going to handle this and have this be a, a polite and civil conversation. So I want to ask my viewers to like and subscribe and hit the notification button to be informed when there is a new episode that's coming out. Um, we are going to get through this epidemic together. Uh, Thomas, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. All right, folks, uh, be well, uh, use common sense, and we will get through this together.